Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Yama, and welcome back to Indigenuity on 3 Triple R. How wonderful to be back on air, our very first show for 2024, our third slash fourth year of running, um, and uh, starting off with a banger, chatting to the wonderful Corey Tutt. Um, so we're going to dive into our interview with him shortly, um, but to give you a bit of background on Corey, in case this is the first time you've heard of him, um, he is a Gomorrah man from now in New South Wales and a STEM champion for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In 2018, Corey founded Deadly Science, which is a not-for-profit organisation that provides STEM resources to remote schools in Australia and connects young Indigenous people with STEM professionals. Um, In 2020, Corey was named the New South Wales Young Australian of the Year and a human rights hero by the Australian Human Rights Commission. In 2021, he received an Australian museum... Sorry... An Australian Museum Eureka Prize, which I've heard is like, you know, the Oscars of science. Um, So a great achievement for Corey there. And also received a Medal of the Order of Australia for service to Indigenous STEM education. And this year, um, one of, well, I guess last year, actually, one of his recent... um, uh, accolades or adventures um, is also now being appointed an adjunct associate professor at um, Western Sydney University. And so Corey um, is also the editor of the Deadly Science Books Through Australian Geographic and has also authored The Wonderful, The First Scientist, and also the recent This Book Thinks You're Deadly, which is a celebration of black excellence, which has just been elevated by the wonderful works of Molly Hunt. And so we're going to get into our interview with Corey now. All right, Corey, welcome to Indigenuity. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And it's um it's a pleasure to be on Indigenuity once again. Uh, yes. <laughs> I feel like I'm um I've been on this before, but uh, it's been a long time. So it's it's really great to be back. Yeah, no, it's actually interesting. I was looking back on it um in in preparation for this interview because so you're my third guest ever, right? You're one of the first people I felt comfortable to reach out to and to have on board. And that was in 2021. I actually cannot believe how just how long ago that's been. You've been on twice so far, but I feel like I'm sort of pulling you back each year. You know, we're sort of three and a bit years running for Indigenuity and this is your third interview. <laughs> it's it's strange because, you know, like so much changes in in life. In, like, you know, when I first did Indigenuity, I'm pretty sure we were in lockdown. Um, oh, yeah. Know, yeah, and, and that like that was a crazy time. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I was doing back then was just trying to help um our kids feel connected and and people feel connected um especially supported you know um I was running around like a madman delivering books and food hampers and things at the time um but then you know you come to now it's 2024 and I'm a little bit older probably a little bit fatter as well and um (laughs) but you know my life has changed so much in that time and um you know I read a I read a book once and I, I forget what the um the book was sorry but the I remember this tagline in the book it's like you know your life will will flip on its axis every five years but for me it feels like every two years um and it's it's a good thing because you start to see you know the things that you thought were important when you were in your 20s are different to when you're in your 30s um which I probably sound like a broken record to the initiated already um but for me it's like you know I start I've got a bit more of a um you know 
and I think it comes with the the growth of deadly science and and the growth of me as an of like of me as an individual and a chief executive officer is that you know you start to you start to employ people you start to think about their families and their future um as well as your own naturally um and you know I'm only 31 years old so it's like for me I'm starting to think a bit more about like you know what can I what can I do for myself to help the people I now employ with deadly science um so for there's you know it's an incredible journey and I guess for me it's like I've had to learn the power of unlearning and I think the power of unlearning is is really important especially um as you get older and you get more involved in this space and and you know history just progresses right and um for me, it's I'm um, having to unlearn things that I that I thought were correct, um, maybe thought processes that I had, um, things from my upbringing as well, um, and that's an exciting process. The, the process of unlearning to learn is is really important. It is has it has actually been quite incredible reflecting on like when we first spoke and then also seeing how far you've come now because really you've your career's evolved a lot what you've been able to achieve has just been absolutely astounding and a lot of that we've viewed through like your growth through the growth of deadly science you know and so I mean I know I think most of our listeners have are familiar with your organization but in case anyone's tuning in who hasn't heard of deadly science before would you be able to give us a bit of an introduction to where Deadly Science has grown from? Yeah, like, so, you know, I, I used to be a laboratory manager and, and animal technician. So just to describe what that role was, my role was to basically manage genetic diversity of genetically modified rodents and frogs, um, amphibians, and also collect all their samples um, for researchers and things like that. So um, I started my career off as a zookeeper, actually, did a, dabbled in a bit of alpaca shearing, um, dabbled in a bit of dog training and dog behavior. Uh, and then, you know, what my, my last research job was the, um, the Matilda Center for Mental Health and Substance Research, where I looked at crystal methamphetamine in Indigenous communities and, you know, created evidence-based um, resources to help Aboriginal people that are suffering from addiction. Um, Non-stigmatizing resources, but, you know, with deadly science, you know, for the first since 2018, um, like I had, I'd worked two jobs to fund it. I had a GoFundMe page. Um, and what it was, was that, you know, I was working in Redfern at the time and, you know, there was no real like science programs by Aboriginal people for our kids that, and I was talking to our kids up in Redfern and I, and like, it would, it would just sort of make me feel sad that, you know, no one was really, people were talking at our kids, but they weren't really talking with them. And I really just wanted to make a difference. And and for me, it was more, it's more about finding something else for me. Cause I, I guess with, um, you know, with my upbringing coming from DAPDO and, and being Indigenous as well, being Gamilaroi, um, I found that, you know, whatever I did was never enough. And I never got that real drive and that, you know, I had the drive, but I would climb the mountain and it would kind of never be enough for me. I'd have to go and find another challenge. And I guess for me, deadly science was that I, you know, could play rugby on the weekends and, and, you know, if I had a bad day at work, I could pack a box of books or, or microscopes and I could send it off to an indigenous community, a school and, you know, 
sometimes you'd get a um you know you'd get a photo back and that was great but you know you knew that you're making a bit of a difference so for me it became much more than that i i started going out to schools um you know i started kidnapping scientists from their desk including you crystal and and doing this program called deadly learners to you know connect these communities that i've been working with with scientists indigenous scientists and non-indigenous scientists um and you know then I, I started going out to schools and you know started off with basic stuff like making lava lamps and you know sending kits to schools so they could do stuff on country with rangers so like you know um, plumbers cameras and things like that so they can photograph night parrots during the day um, collect bilby samples collaborate with research in australia um, and then it became a little bit more than that where we started going into schools and, and working with elders and designing our own kits and manufacturing our own kits um and you know one day i said to myself i'm like you know i really want to write a book one day because um all the books that i was sending to schools and stuff had albert einstein and thomas edison in them and you know although they were great physicists of their time and obviously well renowned they weren't they weren't the definition of science and they were just you know and often enough you'd see albert einstein wearing a lab coat but he never wore a lab coat um a lab coat is just a bit of ppe it's not defined by race or gender or age um and you know if we could teach our our kids about the first scientists this land the aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples who um you know managed the stars the land um you know were the first engineers you know, even just the data sovereignty stuff, like having song lines that were um, coded to be only men or women's song lines or certain families would hold that song. Um, you know, that was data collection and data sovereignty at that point, you know, um, and and having protection of that. So, you know, even from the, the, the finer details to spears like that were made for crabs or fish or, you know, everything was methodical and fought out. Um and teaching kids about this is really important for me because it's like, if we can't see ourselves in STEM, then how the hell can we influence it into the future? And I think there's been a, a large, um, you know, I think over the last few years and especially um, the last couple of years, there's been a big push to push Indigenous kids into STEM, but we're coming up against 234 years of, um, you know, an effort to push us out of science and STEM and, and generally whoever controls the STEM workforce is in control of, you know, our destiny because everything revolves around STEM, whether you like it or not um, from even going to the grocery um, shop to using the checkout to handling money to every facet of our existence involves some level of STEM and whoever um, can control the narrative of, you know, who can go into STEM and who can't really does hold the power. And the best way to give power back to our kids is to show them that they actually do have a place in STEM and a place of leadership as well. Sorry, just your whole journey as well from going from delivering books to publishing books and that push to trying to improve educational outcomes for Indigenous people is just, it's very inspiring. And to see the way Deadly Science has grown as well, like, it, you know, it started off with delivering books. You guys offer a range of programs and you have your own resources for teachers. You have a massive team now as well. Like, how does it feel to, um, I guess, like upon the reflecting of where you started to look back at everything that it's grown into? And do you see like that continued growth? Yeah, I like, you know, it's hard to reflect on something that because I, I live and breathe it every day, right? And you kind of have to when, you know, 
when you start something like Deadly Science, you're either all in or it doesn't work. And the sacrifice, you know, although I'm very blessed and very lucky to, you know, live live the life that I do and, and experience the joy and experience, you know, community and culture and, um, you know, it's, it's come at a cost and the cost is, you know, friendships, my, my relationship with my family. I, I don't get to see them very often. Um, but it was worth it because, you know, we needed something like deadly science. Um, the best thing about Deadly Science now is the like as I'm a bit older and obviously the organization's a bit more established is, is seeing the growth of um my staff members like Kim Barry. Like Kim um come to me with nothing on her resume, um, you know, and just wanted an opportunity. She's a Radri girl from Weris Creek. Um, and you know, mom as well. Uh, and like, you know, from that moment, she was an admin officer and she's went and got a forklift license. She's got her first aid. Um, she's gone from strength to strength. Um, and now she's in our programs working in juvenile justice centers, helping build a lab kit for juvenile justice inmates so they can find a passion of STEM. Because um, more often than not, when a kid is locked up, that's they don't really get an interaction with STEM education. No one's really doing that stuff. But if you can put it back into their hands, and put their education back into their hands um, and train and empower people to help deliver that program, then you can see growth in individuals as well. Um, and she's been nominated for Citizen of the Year um, by Port Macquarie Hastings Council. And like wow. that's that's a huge result for me. Like as a as a founder, that like that makes me so proud. Um and then having people like Vinny, um, Vinny Scott join us. He's a Bellbrook man, he's from Bellbrook, he's Dungaddy man, Birupai man, but he, you know, to have someone that's that well-respected in the community want to want to leave a very secure job and come work for Deadly Science um, because we've got that reputation of developing people and, and really giving it our all to our staff, um, you know, in, and even being nominated for a Telstra Business Award. Like, I know nothing about business. You know, my my previous business experience was our package hearing, Um so, you know, even it's driven me seeing these people come into Deadly Science, actually invest in myself and learn a bit more about business and um, and learn more about how I can make this thing sustainable, um, not just for our kids, but for the people that come work for us. And, um, you know, because I'm so grateful for the effort they all put in, like um, we've got, you know, 12 staff now. We've got Josh Waters, who's... Um, you know, Gamilaroi man, he, he's seconded to uh, We High, but he's running our Pathways program. It's his program. It's his identity. Um, and this is what I always wanted for Deadly Science is that I wanted to empower people to use Deadly Science as a tool to help out young kids. And, you know, it's like whether I'm the CEO of Deadly Science or not, I'll always have that pride factor um, forever of you know i've been able to not just help our kids but actually people get employed and and develop you know employ like develop themselves um and that's kind of why i've i've signed up to the harvard business school to learn more about business so i can um continue to employ our young kids as well and, and give them jobs and um the best thing as well is that you know because we've made that sacrifice early on of being away from home so much and, and doing all the travel. 
I may I'm able to give jobs to kids like Jasmine Ferguson, who um she's a young girl that lives up in Port Macquarie, but she's got cerebral palsy and um and she's got a severe disability. But a lot of the employees in Port Macquarie wouldn't give her a job when she did work experience for them. So, you know, deadly science can give her a place and and a bit of um independence and and things like that. So that that's stuff that I'm really proud of. And, you know, it's much, much more than me now as a founder. Um, and that's what I always wanted. Um, yeah, I got all the accolades early on, but it's now being able to put those experiences back into people that, you know, believe in the same cause, they come to work, they put in, and it's just such a, it's a beautiful thing, Crystal. Honestly, the way that you speak about your love for your colleagues and your community is really heartwarming. It does remind me of the, I feel like the love in which you showed through your most recent book as well. So you've you've worked on a number of publications at this point. I was going to ask you, like, do you remember, even know the number off the top of your head? Or is it something you have to sort of go back and go, okay, so there was these Australian Geographic ones. Then I've also had the wonderful First Scientist and then also the incredible This Book Thinks You're Deadly was it important for you to tell those stories through this book, Thinks You're Deadly? And was that a format that evolved or was it something that you always knew that you wanted to write those um, anecdotes and those those tributes, I guess, to the deadly folk who have touched your life? I suppose, you know, everyone, like, you know, with the success of First Scientist, my first book, it was kind of like I think everyone thought that I would, I would just go to write a follow-up um, of First Scientist in a volume two. Mm. And for me, like, a lot went into that book and a lot of love and a lot of, um, you know, liaising with all the communities, getting permission to share the stories. Um, but it wasn't the right time for me. Um, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, having run a marathon. If you've run a marathon or a half marathon, you, you're probably not in a mood to do it again <laughs> unless you're crazy. Um, and that's kind of how I felt about First Scientists. Um, I had written this book and and I just didn't feel like I could give it the second version, the justice of that point. Um, at the time of writing This Will Think See Deadly, I um, I'd got injured playing rugby union. Um, unfortunately, I'd like I'd gotten to a bit of a niggle and um, a guy picked me up and dropped me on my back and I oh. punched my lung um, wow. pretty bad. And couldn't fly anywhere because I had a punctured lung for a few weeks. And um, it was a pretty nasty injury. I, I Like it wasn't the worst injury I've had, but it, it was it was up there. And, you know, it, it accumulated in like there was it was a pretty rough time because I'd, I'd probably experienced my first form of online bullying for a, a while. And um, it was coming it was coming pretty thick and fast. And, and I couldn't really understand why at the time. I mean, I do have a better understanding now of why it occurred, but it, for me, it was a pretty dark time. And I was just looking for inspiration um, because I'd, I'd lived this incredible life where I'd gone from, you know, a kid from DAPTO who was told that I was going to be dead or in jail by 21 to the young Australian of the year for New South Wales to Eureka prize winner to a human rights hero winner. Um, and, it never felt like it was enough for me. And like, and for me, it was, I found it really, um, I found it difficult because, you know, you go from like being widely respected to now this tall poppy thing where, you know, 
individuals want to sort of take me down a peg and that and that's fine like I'm happy with that like I don't want to be the superstar scientist dude but it hurt a lot because I was hurting physically because I couldn't really do anything so I was stuck looking at my phone looking at Twitter which I've now deleted because it's just a cesspool of crap and I really I thought about all the amazing people I'd met over the years. Like I'd met Nova Paris. Um, I've I've struck up a really great friendship with Arnie Kathy Freeman. Um, you know, and I would think to myself, like, what would Kathy do? You know, what would what would good do? Um, you know, and you kind of you get over the self pity a bit, Crystal. Um, and I did have a lot of self pity and self loathing at that point because it's all you. It's a natural human behavior um but this is where the unlearning comes in i i started you know looking at myself a bit more and and thinking about our community and you know picking myself back up off the canvas because you know i have it very very lucky like i live in a house i i eat pretty well you know i've got staff i've got you know i've got a car i've got things going for me that other people um, you know, don't get that opportunity. And my job is to make sure that they have that opportunity to have those things um, and to feel like they're part of something. So I picked myself up and I wrote this book and I wrote it all in aeroplanes. Um, so I wrote it on the back of the Qantas Link jet. Oh, wow. Um, leaving Port Macquarie, as I do a lot of travel and a lot of speaking gigs, I wrote this book and and I said to Molly Hunt, who's the illustrator, who's been a really good friend of mine, I said, one day we'll write a book and it'll be the best damn book ever. And it this was a book that, like, I poured my heart into it because I really just wanted, I wanted kids to pick this up. You know, we've just come out of COVID. We've come out of some pretty dark times. And especially now after the referendum, um, I wanted kids to pick this up and I wanted them to feel a bit of hope, the hope that I got from these people in that really dark time. And, you know, and also I wanted them to, there's a page in the book, which is not my idea. It's actually my wife's idea, but I, um, I stole it for the book, which is um, if she wants to, if she litigiously, if she wants to sue me, she can. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was to, to have a page in the book where, you know, mob could put a photo of their relative or, their kid um, in the book and they could be in a book with Kathy Freeman or Ash Barty or, you know, Crystal oh, Dean. That's, that's beautiful. Um, and they could write something about that person so that that person, if they're feeling sad or like they're feeling like they need that boost or, or maybe they don't need that boost. Maybe they're just doing it because um, they're just a nice person who wants to brighten someone's day or they want to just, you know, give them that, that boost they need in life they could do that. And um, the best part about that book was, you know, I, I go out to a lot of hospitals and I don't do it for like, you know, some people might think I do it for like, oh, you know, look, he's going at the hospital. Is it good? Is it do good or whatever? But I do it because I really enjoy it. And I really enjoy spending time with kids doing it tough. And the best part of that book was I was able to take that book and, and sign it and, and write something really positive about kids going through a really tough time, like whether they're undergoing cancer treatment or, or things like that. And, you know, 
it's just something that I wanted to give to our kids as a gift to help them. Um, and that was, that was purely it, which was a very exciting, it was a very exciting book. And, um, you know, it didn't do that. Like it, it did well, but it didn't do as well as first scientists. And that's understandable. It was a different book, but I am really, really proud of it. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite books that I've been part of. Yeah, you definitely should be proud. I've learned a lot recently, like also as like an author. So I'm curious, right. About, um, in general, like just how books perform in Australia and, it is you've definitely created two works that have performed just absolutely wonderfully and have touched a whole lot more people than most books get the chance to. So, of course, I mean, it's hard to compare anything to The First Scientist. That was an absolute tidal wave. But this book, Things You're Deadly, I've seen it around and I know it's touched so many people. And I've had so many people reach out to me, of course, as well, because they have seen um, that you were very kind to include me as well. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're reaching a lot of people and you're making a massive difference. And, yeah, credit to your wife, Kate. That is a beautiful, lovely idea to include a space for to, to the readers to see themselves within the book as well. I think that's very completes the whole thing. Yeah, look, and and you know the cool thing about it is I've just finished my um my third uh, self-titled book, which is um it's going to be out early twenty twenty five, but it's called Caution. This book contains deadly reptiles, but that that whole process, you know, it it was a um it flooded my scientific juices again. Um, the research that went into it, I I spent months and months and months talking to communities and, and language holders um, and knowledge holders, finding the traditional names for our reptile species. So individual reptile species. And, you know, I narrowed it down to 70 because it is a children's book and you don't want to be as thick as anything, but, you know, to try and educate the kids on the the traditional names of our reptiles, you know, the death adder isn't, is a really like sometimes Europeans name our animals in really silly ways and Indigenous people have had names for these things for millennia and they're more inclined to what they are. So um, with that book that's coming, it's um, it's quite fascinating. So, like, you know, there's the name for the death adder, which is not an actual adder. It's actually in a lapid, um, which is related to the cobra or the brown snake. Um, but Europeans called an adder because the only venomous snakes in Europe were adders. Um, oh. And death is a, is actually a lie as well so when europeans first got here they they spelt it as in deaf as in can't hear because when they came across deaf adders they couldn't actually the deaf adder wouldn't move out the way because it doesn't actually hear um and it's an ambush predator so it's not really likely to move away quickly like another another snake like a brown snake or a red belly black snake but it was misspelt on a tombstone um in the early 1800s and it, it therefore got the name death adder as in, you know, insinuating death. But um, these things are, yeah, they're highly, highly venomous, but they sit under leaf litter and they wiggle their tail like a lure and they are the fastest striking snake in the world, one of the fastest striking snakes in the world, um, despite being a short, pudgy snake. So if you were to use the European model of naming our reptiles, um, it would be a short pudgy snake, but you couldn't really call it that because it is one of the fastest striking snakes in the world. In the same way that a brown snake isn't always brown or a tiger snake doesn't have always have stripes. Um, I really wanted to educate people on what these things were called before um, whitefellas came here. And um, and really, you know, I wanted that, I wanted this reptile book um, to be the the go-to book for any um, budding, budding like animal or reptile nerd. So um, keep an eye out for that one because I think that one's going to be my best work so far. 
Yeah. Do you have like an idea of what timeline we're looking at before we can get our hands on it? Yeah, it's going to be February, February uh, 2025. And I'm working with a Walpree guy. Um, he lives up in Newcastle called Ben Williams. Um, it's the first time he's done a book, but him and I have been um, nerding away um, for a number of months on on the design and choosing the reptiles and and working together um, on how to and he's hand painting every single one of them. So hence why it's taking a little well. bit. So um, it was something that like I tried to pick a different designer for each title. Like so with my books, um, working with Black Douglas on the first scientists, and then working with Molly on this book thinks he's deadly, and then Ben on this new book. Um, it's something that I've tried to do with everyone so that I can give an equal opportunity to a lot of different Indigenous artists and give them the, the freedom to take my work and take it to another level. Um, the words are just one thing, but the the artists who I work with is really important too. So it, it's important that I work with people that I'm, I'm friendly with and I can work with um, quite closely. So that's kind of why um, my books seem a little bit different from each book is because I try to work with a different designer every time. And, you know, people like Molly and Ben and, and Black, um, very, very good friends of mine, but we've spent a lot of time together and just nerding out of our ideas. And it's kind of like a musician, right? Like I'm the drummer and they're kind of the singer and I'm just working out a beat for them to do their their singing. And, and that's I kind love, of how I write books. I yeah. love that. What a beautiful comparison. Um, and you can really see that, I guess, like musical magic elevating your words um, through the works of Molly and Black Douglas and soon to be Ben. I cannot wait to see those paintings. They'll be worth every uh, minute that we wait along the way till, uh, till February 2025. It's going to be so good. And, and then I wanted to ask, um, I know, so thank you for this chat today. Um, you know, the, I feel like we could talk for hours about all of your work. I've, I've skipped a billion questions along the way because there's just so much to discuss. But I, I did want to acknowledge, like, you've had a rather extraordinary career, as we've said. And you've said, like, you know, you're getting these accolades at a young age, including, like, Young Australian of the Year in New South Wales, the Order of Australia Medal, Adjunct Associate Professorship. But as you've mentioned, it's more about the lessons that you've been able to pull from those moments of recognition. And so I was wondering if you could tell us what's next on the horizon for you in terms of professional development. Yeah, I guess um, I'm I'm actually going to be a bit selfish um, and and work. I, I'm I've signed up to do some study um, at, with the Harvard Business School and do some short business courses, but. I'm really, um, last year I spent some time in San Francisco um, and spent some time with Hidden Genius Project, which is similar to Deadly Science, but they work with African-American youth. And, you know, that changed my whole outlook on on how to run a charity. And, you know, it's not easy. Like, you know, it, especially for young Aboriginal people um, who really inspired by helping their community out no one's really got the blueprint on how to to run a charity you know you have all these rules and regulations which are, are needed um but navigating those reporting all those kind of things um i was lucky enough to learn that stuff early on but you know to learn how to actually measure the impact of deadly science it's been really hard because you know, I'm like most people from the bush. I don't really like asking others for money, um, but it does go a long way to helping, you know, build the next generation of, of deadly scientists. And 
And my job is not to go and tell kids to go do science, it's for telling them they can. So, you know, it, it really did change me as a, like a lot last year. So I went for a Westpac fellowship and, you know, from there I've been able to really build on myself and, you know, this out, this whole idea of unlearning um, is, is really important. Um, you know, I, I'm probably similar to a lot of people in our space, um, especially when you, when you start a charity and you, you know, you're trying to do good things. And, you know, I feel that, sometimes my opinion of myself doesn't really reflect uh, reflect other people's opinions of me. Um, and that comes from a place of like, you know, trauma. And I guess something that I've had to unlearn is like, you know, I've had to learn how to love like myself and what I do. And that to me is really important. And it's an important lesson that, you know, the accolades that I've got, they were always just tools for me to to build more opportunities for our kids. Um, but, you know, and, and I've never really sat back and said, wow, I'm really proud of, of what I've achieved. And I had to really, like, I had to really unpack that and be like, you know what, I can be proud of everything, you know, and I get weirded out sometimes because some people, like, who've been following me for a while, they go, oh, my God, like, you know, I can't believe I'm meeting you. And it's like, I, I kind of laugh at that because I'm like, I'm a, you know, I'm a hot chip eating, you know, footy player, like uncle, um, just a normal dude that just tried to do something good. And, and, you know, I, when I do get those moments, I always make sure that I'm like, even if I'm not feeling the best or if I don't want to, um, if I don't really want to engage anyone that day, um, I always make sure that I put my um, my best face on because those moments are really important, especially like, you know, I had a moment the other week, I was walking in the shops and this, this young Aboriginal kid came running up to me and he was like, I love what you do. Like, you know, I follow everything you do and and I love your books and things like that. And your book is the first book I borrow when I go to the library and I pick it up and I love it. And I was like, you know, for me, you get a bit weirded out by that, like at that point, because you don't, you don't really see the impact of that and what that means. But look, I remember when I was young and I, I used to idolize rugby league players and, you know, you you run up to a rugby league player after a game and if they're nice to you or if they're an asshole, um, you remember that. So I don't really want to be the asshole. And, you know, have people remember me, especially young people remember me as being rude or, or like, you know, not having time for them because I do have time for them. Um, and it doesn't really matter what I'm doing as long as, you know, as long as they have a really good experience. So we took a photo with a young fella, walked into a bookshop and I bought him his own copies of those books um, and signed them for him. And like, they, look, that took 20 minutes out of my day, but that's 20 minutes I don't regret because you know, in 10, 20 years time when he's telling his kids about, you know, the time he met an author, whether he remembers it or not, you know, he's got that really positive experience that he can pass on to the next generation. And I think that that, that often gets like slept on a little bit, you know, we get lost in the cyber world of Twitter and Instagram and um, Fred's now <laughs> um, or Bebo. If I don't know if the kids are still using that, but um you know, that's what's really important. Um, and those moments are worth more than um, an auxiliary like on, on Instagram by some random you haven't met. Um, 
I would, I would take those, like, I would take that moment um, out of, like, you could trade any accolade for that moment over and over again, and I would do it. Um, Yeah. You're really inspiring. I think it is an important um, point as well to, I guess you quite often as a public figure, you do need to always be on and it is important to not get, I guess, forget the reason why you began all of it in the first place. And for you, it really was, um, you know, trying to support deadly young, deadly young fellas as best you can. Um, And now I guess it must be a bit bizarre being seen as like a, a role model, but it is deserved. And especially here at Indigenuity, we're very proud of you and we've been proud of what witnessing this growth over the years and can't wait to continue to witness this growth in the coming years as well. Um, Corey, thank you so much for your time today uh, and look forward to chatting to you next year about your next book. <laughs> no worries. Uh, stay deadly, everyone, and take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.